Frank set the boundaries of the ocean vast, carved out the mountains from the distant past, molded a man from the miry clay, breathing him life, but he went astray. I own the cattle on a thousand hills. I write the music for the whippoorwills. Control the planets with their rocks and rills. I give you freedom to use your own will. I hold the waters in my mighty hand. Spread out the heavens with a single span. Make all creation tremble at my voice. But my own sons come to me by choice. I own the cattle on a thousand hills. I write the music for the whippoorwills. Control the planets with their rocks and rills. But give you freedom to use your own will. Even the oxen know the master's stall, and sheep will recognize the shepherd's call. I could demand your love, I own you twice, but only willing love is worth the price. I own the cattle on a thousand hills. I write the music for the whippoorwills. Control the planets with their rocks and rills. I give you freedom to use your own will. And if you want me to, I'll make you whole. I'll only do it, though, if you say so. I'll never force you, for I love you so. I give you freedom, is it yes or no? I give you freedom, is it yes or no? I give you freedom, is it yes or no? I, um, I've uh, asked the ladies to sing that song from this morning again. I don't know about you, but I really enjoyed that. And so they're going to do that again. And if you, by some chance, maybe you're in the nursery or something, missed it, boy, you missed a good one. And so they're going to do it tonight for us. And again, we thank the Lord for just uh, all of those that are involved in our music program here and just the blessing that they are indeed to the services as well as to each and every one of us.
Oh, that was worth hearing again, wasn't it? Well, what a message. Amen. That's a wonderful message there. Amen. <clears throat> well, that's good. Good stuff. Amen. <clears throat> I read about a preacher <clears throat> who he had a message too. I mean, he had a message and he was dealing with drinking and alcohol and I mean, he got, I mean, he was fired up. If I had all the beer in the world, he said, I'd take it and I'd throw it in the river. With even greater emphasis, he said, and if I had all the wine in the world, I'd take it and throw it into the river. Finally, he said, and if I had all the whiskey in the world, I'd take it and throw it in the river. They all sat down. He sat down. And next thing you know, the song leader stood very cautiously and announced with a smile for our closing song. Let us sing hymn number 365, Shall We Gather at the River? <clears throat> you like them good messages, amen? Well, take your Bible, turn over to the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 6. This probably isn't one of them. Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verse well, we're going to start and just read the chapter, but we're going to kind of just kind of, kind of veer away. We'll mention a few things about the chapter and then uh, just kind of talk about, a, I guess, a topic that I think is very encouraging, very helpful, and, and intriguing to some degree. Ecclesiastes chapter 6. <clears throat> Ecclesiastes chapter 6. There is an evil which I have seen under the sun. Now remember, we're dealing with Solomon, who is a man that enjoyed virtually every pleasure in life, every pleasure that life had to offer. And he held the most prestigious position in the world, at least at the time. He was the king of Israel. Let nobody kid you, at that point in history, Israel was at its pinnacle. And may I say, it was the greatest nation on earth. He was healthy, he was wealthy, and he was wise. Who better to address the issues of this book, the book of Ecclesiastes? However, we have to always be reminded that the, that, that the views that are expressed in this book are that of a man. And so there will be times that the conclusions that he comes to may not line up with the rest of Scripture. Why? Because they're the conclusions of a man. Now, Ecclesiastes has been abused by cults and other religious zealots and some to support some of the most devilish doctrines. And we need to be careful to balance what is said in Ecclesiastes in light of all of Scripture. The Bible, we, we, we know that the best way to interpret Scripture is by Scripture, comparing Scripture with Scripture. And so as we begin again, as we start here in chapter 12 or chapter 6, let's make sure that we remember those things as we move along. There is an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it is common among men. A man to whom God hath given riches, wealth, and honor, so that he wanteth nothing for his soul of all that he desireth, yet God giveth him not power to eat thereof, but a stranger eateth it. This is vanity, and it is an evil disease. If a man beget a hundred children and live many years, so that the days of his years be many, and his soul be not filled with good, and also that he have no burial, I say that an untimely birth is better than he. <clears throat> 
For he cometh in with vanity, and departeth in darkness, and his name shall be covered with darkness. Moreover, he hath not seen the sun, nor known anything. This hath more rest than <clears throat> this hath more rest than the other. Yea, though he live a thousand years twice told, yet hath he seen no good. Do not all go to one place. All the labor of man is for his mouth, and yet the appetite is not filled. For what hath the wise more than the fool? What hath the poor that knoweth to walk before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the desire. This also is vanity and vexation of spirit. That which hath been named already, excuse me, that which hath been is named already, and it is known that it is man, neither may he contend with him that is mightier than he. Seeing there be many things that increase vanity, what is man the better? For who knoweth what is good for man in this life, all the days of his vain life which he spendeth as a shadow? For who can tell a man what shall be after him under the sun? <clears throat> Boy, in this particular passage, there's a number of things that, again, this writer, Solomon, is stating. We see in verses 1 through 6, especially in verse 2, he says, A man to whom God hath given riches, wealth, and honor, so that he wanteth nothing for his soul of all that he desireth, yet God giveth him not power to eat thereof. But a stranger eateth it. This is vanity and it is an evil disease. Boy, it's uh, amazing. We may see uh, man, uh, men possessed of uh, possessing all kind of gifts of fortune. And yet they're denied the ability to enjoy them. Can you imagine having all the money that you had ever desired but not having the health to utilize it, to enjoy it? Solomon looks at these issues and he continues to, to, to see things from a perspective and says, wow, this is also a great disease. This is a problem. And therefore, we can conclude that wealth cannot secure happiness because if it could, then everyone that was wealthy would be happy. In verses 7 through 9, especially in verse 7, he says, all the labor of man is for his mouth and yet the appetite is not filled. Again, desire is insati insatiable. It's always there. It never leaves. I don't care how much we have, it's never enough. <clears throat> Men are always striving after enjoyment, pleasure, but they never gain their wish completely. Again, that just kind of reinforces the old conclusion that man's happiness is not within his own power then. You and I do not control that. We can't in ourselves and in and of ourselves truly find true happiness. Now, we can experience joy because joy is within. It's a result of eternity and the promises of God. But happiness, <clears throat> you, can't, you can't guarantee that. Verses 10 through 12, we see that all things are foreknown and foreordained of God. And you know, <clears throat> it's really kind of useless to murmur against or to argue this fact. That, that somehow, you know, we might as well just admit, I guess, that the future is beyond our knowledge. It's beyond our control. And so, therefore, it's wise to make the best of the present. Because we're not guaranteed what tomorrow holds. The writer in the book of Ecclesiastes, he comes to some conclusions here. And... <clears throat> 
I guess if I could kind of, in my mind, take chapter 6 and ask myself, what is he really getting at? I think I would say that, that the passage, and along with other scriptures in the Word of God, basically share with us that there are some things that lie beyond the scope of human understanding. There are some things that we just can't, nor will we ever understand. However, there are other things that are within the scope of human understanding. It's kind of like a coin that's two-sided. You have heads and tails. Well, in this case, you have on one side, you have those things which we are capable of understanding. But then on the other side of that coin, there are some things we just never understand that we're incapable of. And I want to consider both sides of that coin for just a few moments. I want to consider some things that, are, that, lie, be, that lie beyond the scope of our human understanding and things that lie within the grasp of it. And so let's take a few minutes and consider those things tonight in light of the book of Ecclesiastes and other scriptures throughout. Father, we need you. We love you. We thank you for this time together. Lord, the writer of this passage and uh, this book, Father, experienced life and came to some tremendous com- conclusions, some, uh, some from a man's perspective. Others, obviously, he had insights, spiritual insight. Lord, we are grateful for those things that you do make us aware of, that you do allow us to be privy to. And yet, Lord, we are conscious of the fact that there are things that we cannot nor will we understand in this life and on this side. Help us, Lord, to be willing to live our lives today the best we possibly can, to make the best of the present. And we'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen. So let's talk about some things that lie beyond the scope of human knowledge. We think of the nature of the deity. That's an interesting concept, isn't it? Take your Bible, turn over to the book of Job, chapter 11, verse 7. Job, chapter 11, verse 7. In Job, chapter 11, verse 7, we're going to read here, and again, we know Job went through some amazing trials and and then he had some friends that came along and really tried to encourage him and lift him up they didn't do a very good job of it but they did they tried in their own way <clears throat> but notice what's going on here in Job 11:7 note the statement the question that's asked here it says canst thou by searching Job 11:7 canst thou by searching find out God not find God There's a difference. We know that they that seek him early shall find him. In this particular case, he says, Canst thou by searching find out God? Canst thou find out the Almighty unto perfection? Well, I'll tell you what, when you reread that passage, that's that's an amazing, those are a couple amazing questions. I mean, Canst thou by searching find out God? Can you really understand God? Can you really put him in a box? Can you make him... Really, can you understand him from a human perspective? I mean, define God as spirit for me. Make sense of that. The Bible says in John 4, 24, it says, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. 
I mean, consider this thought also that God is love. I mean, he's characterizing, we characterize him as love. I mean, how is it that God is love? I mean, I can't wrap my mind around that. He's not a part of it. He's not just a loving God. He is love. And the Bible says in 1 John 4, 8 and verse 16 as well, it says, He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love. And he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. The nature of the deity, God himself, God is a spirit, God is love, characterized as love. To characterize him as light. How do we comprehend this? You say, well, I see light. Okay, there's God, right? I'm just saying, how do, what are you talking about? I mean, how do we wrap our minds around God? How do we really understand His nature? We understand the fact that He's, that he's light, because the Bible tells us, but to really understand Him as light, characterize as light. He says, this then is the message which I, we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. See, to define God by his ascribed attributes does not explain his essence. It just can't. It declares him to be beyond the bounds of our finite minds and our finite understanding. We just can't grasp God. We can't understand his nature. In Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, we often use these passages to, to kind of express that thought, but there's so much more to these passages. I'm going to have to preach on them one day, but for my thoughts are not your thoughts, he says in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8 and 9. Neither are your ways my ways, say the Lord, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And again, I, I get it, and as we utilize those verses, and, and I think it's important, and I think we can use them for this cause, to help us understand that God is not on the same level. God is not equal with man. Man is not equal with God. God is far beyond mankind. And that his thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. And we understand in that passage, in the context of it, though, that he's dealing with the sins of his people, Israel. And he recognizes their sin and he sees their sin. And he, in spite of their sin, is willing to continue to forgive them. And he says, my ways are not your ways. And my thoughts are not your thoughts. If someone were to treat you the way you've treated me, you would squash them. But your ways are not my ways. And your thoughts are not my thoughts. I'm merciful and I'm gracious and I'm forgiving. Unlike you, Israelites. And honestly, unlike us, human beings, his ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. In Psalm 139, verse 6, the Bible says, Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain unto it. That is the perspective of all human beings in light of a God who is high and holy, who's exalted and magnified and elevated beyond our even finite comprehension. See, we try to place God in a box, but he's too vast. He's too great. He's too big. He's above us. His person exceeds our ability to comprehend or even understand. We are insignificant, minuscule. We are minute in comparison to God. His reality exceeds our reason. His existence exceeds our experience. 
He is God and we are the creation. So as we think of God and we consider this thought, things that lie beyond the scope of human knowledge, we would say the nature of the deity. But I would say also and contend the mystery of the incarnation. In 1 Timothy, turn there, would you please? 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. <clears throat> In 1 Timothy 3, 16, we read, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Now, we know that uh, God's up to something. This is a mystery now. And if it's a mystery, that means it's something we're going to be very, have a very difficult time understanding, is it not? Matter of fact, if it's a mystery, we'll never really fully understand it in this life. He says, again, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in the glory. Again, notice, God was manifest in the flesh. That's the incarnation we call it. God became man. Boy, how did that happen? Explain that one for me. Boy, I'd like to get a handle on that one. But there are, there are cults and there are religions around the world that are warring and fighting with that one all the time that say, how could Jesus Christ be God? And yet he calls him Father. Once again, we're trying to wrap our finite minds around something that is truly spiritual, something that's bigger than ourselves, something that God himself identifies as a mystery. Without controversy, no question about it, great is the mystery of godliness, that God was manifest in the flesh. I mean, to show that Jesus Christ must have been Emmanuel, God with us, that, that may not surpass our ability as human beings to, 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 to understand it. We, we can grasp the thought that God became man. And we can kind of say, yes, okay, I, I get it. I agree with it. I'll accept that. But to truly, adequately explain that concept, how Christ became all man and was all God divine, We, we can't explain that, really. We can accept it, but we can't explain it. The mystery of the incarnation. The mystery of the incarnation. That is, it lies beyond the scope of human knowledge. So the nature of deity, the mystery of the incarnation, but also, think about the contents of the atonement. Think about the elements of the atonement. That Christ, as a matter of fact, bore the sins of men, that, that he removed their guilt, that he destroyed the power of sin. That can be understood from the general tone of Scripture. That can be kind of, we can grasp that mentally. But there's so much more involved here, isn't there? I mean, on the other hand, how Almighty God, perfect in nature, submitted himself to sin's penalty. Not only submitted himself to sin's penalty, but literally became sin for us who knew no sin. 
He knew no sin. Excuse me, we did. And he became sin for us. And he paid sin's penalty death. And he did that in order to meet his own righteous demands. Often we refer to that in Scripture in 1 John, especially as propitiation. He became the propitiation. He fulfilled the righteous demands of God. Guess what? He's God, though. So literally, God left heaven and took your place in mind and fulfilled his own holy, righteous demand. And how do you, how do you explain that? It lies beyond the scope of human reasoning. We think of the events of the future. Once again, there's some things that just lie beyond our scope of knowledge. Proverbs chapter 27, verse 1 says, Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. He says, in Ecclesi- who, he says in Ecclesiastes, who can tell a man what shall be after him under the sun? How, how do we know? Who can really tell us? In the book of James, the Bible even warns us, be careful that you make too many plans that you say, well, next year at this time I'll be here, and next year I'll do that. Hey, there's nothing wrong with preparing. There's nothing wrong with planning. But be very careful that you don't assume that anybody but God's in control. I mean, when we look at this, we have to admit, we have to understand and come to the conclusion that there are some things that lie beyond the scope of human knowledge. But may I say there are also some things that lie within the scope of human knowledge. I think of the character of God. You know, Jonah would ultimately be sent to Nineveh. And we know that Nineveh was a very wicked city. God would send Jonah there to preach a message of repentance. Now, that wasn't a popular place to go at that time, nor was it probably a very positive message. But may I say that that was the message that God had sent him with and the place he sent him. At the time, the Ninevites could not tell whether or not Jehovah God would be gracious to them. They had no idea. All they knew is that the man of God was telling them to repent. And all they could do was put on sackcloth and ashes. All they could do was rest upon the mercy of God. They did not know for sure how he would respond to their repentance. Thank God for the leader there. It required the people of God, a people there in that city to move forward for God. And their God spared that city. In Jonah 3 9, it says, Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not? When's the last time someone, just in your mind, acknowledged the fact that God can express fierce wrath. I mean, really, what, think about that for a minute. When you think of all the descriptions of God and how people view God today in the culture in which we live, have you ever heard him say, oh yeah, he is a God of fierce wrath? You don't hear that one much, do you? 
We understand that. I mean, I get it. I mean, everyone wants to focus on and, and, and look to the positive. We all want to believe God is just a God of love. And, and unfortunately, there's balance there. We understand and we can truly grasp his love because we see the opposite end of it. It's like, how do you know something's good if you don't know if something's bad? I mean, if you don't have bad, you would never have anything to gauge the good. And in this case, God is a God that judges sin. And, and in this case, he, the Ninevites, who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not? You know, you know how we respond to things like that, if that's the question? Uh, forget it then. If he ain't going to guarantee me freedom, if he's not going to give me a pass, then I'm not going to do anything. Forget him. Aren't you glad? In this case, the Ninevites said, you know what? We're just going to rest on the mercy of God. We got nothing to offer God. We're going to trust God here. And we're not going to base it on whether or not he delivers us. We're just going to do what God says. We're going to recognize God. We're going to elevate God. We're going to magnify God. We're going to go ahead and repent in sackcloth and ashes. And if God does choose, so be it. If not, well. Today, though, it's different. See, we can tell from the revelation of Scripture. We can tell from the Word of God today. Especially the teachings of Christ Himself. We can tell that God is love. And guess what? He's not willing that any should perish. We know this today. We have this in writing in the book of 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Man, I mean to tell you, you put the sackcloth and ashes on today, you can be guaranteed God's going to do something. He's going to rescue. He's going to forgive. See, that lies within the scope of human knowledge. Will God be merciful? Yes. Will God forgive? Indeed. Without a doubt. If we come broken, humbled, repentantly toward Him. Hey, that lies within the scope of human knowledge. Not only that, but just the divinity of, God, of Christ. Again, we've already talked about some things, okay, the incarnation, but just that Christ was God, that the divinity, we said. See, human reason is perfectly capable and competent to decide upon the question whether or not Jesus of Nazareth, the one who walked the dusty trails of Galilee, was merely a common man or whether he was God himself robed in the likeness of man. Sinful flesh. He looked, looked like a normal man, but he was God-man. And we're capable of coming to that conclusion. Tonight, if I would ask the question, how many of you believe that Jesus Christ is God in flesh? Was, how many of you can honestly say, I believe that he was Emmanuel, God with us, and hands would be raised all over the building? Well, therefore, that is within the scope of human knowledge. Now, how that happened, as we said, is a whole other issue. But we can truly attest to this reality. In Romans chapter 8, verse 3, the Bible says, For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. Well, we have the Word of God on it. Again, the evidence for this decision is provided. 
And anyone who seriously wishes to arrive at the proper conclusion need only read it, understand it, and accept it. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 23 and 24. Turn there, would you please? Matthew chapter 4. This Jesus was unusual, very different in so many ways. We have somewhat of a, I guess, short summary of his ministry on earth. And Jesus, verse 23, chapter 4 of Matthew, went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. And his fame went throughout all Syria, and they, they brought unto him all sick people that were taken with divers diseases and torments, and those which were possessed with devils, and those which were lunatic, and those that had the palsy, and he healed them. I know that there are people that go around claiming to be able to heal today, and I know there are different groups that, and different religions and faiths that claim to have power over the flesh and able to do these kind of things, but listen, I don't know about you, but I've never met anyone that would heal everyone. That's interesting, isn't it? I don't know about you, but everywhere Jesus went, nobody died. Not, at least not, it's not recorded. No one's dying in his presence. And not only that, but everyone that's brought to him, he's able to heal. There's no limitation on his healing ministry. It doesn't stop at the door of the church. It doesn't stop with the third offering. I mean, this this Jesus was unusual. He was very special. He was God, Emmanuel. There wasn't one thing in nature that he could not overcome. He had control over nature itself because he was the creator of it. In John 14, 11, the Bible says, Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very work's sake. This idea, this, this thought, the divinity of Christ is within our grasp. It lies within the scope of human knowledge. We can know this. We think of the work of the Savior. Again, his work is clearly expressed and revealed in the scriptures. And you know, Christ came to reveal the Father. We see that in John 14, 9 again. Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that has seen me has seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, shew us the Father? Well, what a rebuke, huh? You imagine facing the Lord Jesus Christ and you say, show us the Father. And he says, are you kidding me? Have I been with you so long? Have I, have I not revealed myself? Can you not see him in me? Well, that would have been, that would have been a rough rebuke. He came to reveal the Father, though. Jesus Christ did not come just to simply elevate himself. He came to magnify and glorify the Father. You say, again, I don't get it. I know there are some things that are beyond the scope of human knowledge. But he did. 
and to atone for sin itself. We are very aware of this. We are privy to this. We can discover this in Scripture as well. In 1 Peter 2.21, For even hereunto were ye called, excuse me, in Matthew 20, 28, even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. He came to atone for sin, to give his life a ransom for many, to pay for your sin and mine. We understand this. This is within the, this is within the scope of our understanding and knowledge. He exemplified holiness. A tremendous picture of Holiness. In 1 Peter 2, 21, For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. He left us an example. Now, a lot of times, people somehow believe that that's what Christ's whole purpose was for coming. So why do you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross? Why do you believe he came at all? Oh, well, to leave us a good example of good. Well, he did indeed leave us. That answer is not completely wrong. It's not completely correct either. It's, it's, it's not complete. I mean, he came for so much more than just simply to leave an example. There's no way you and I could ever arrive safely on heaven's shore without the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. He came to give his life a ransom for many. He didn't just come to be an example of good, although he indeed is. And we're to follow his steps. He came to ultimately establish a kingdom on the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God on earth. Again, two of the kingdoms, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, distinct, different from one another. One a spiritual kingdom, the other a physical kingdom. And he came to establish that kingdom. To ultimately the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven combined together all at once. We exist in the kingdom of God today. Jesus Christ is not with us in person, physically. There's no physical throne. There's no physical kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom we live in, the kingdom of God. But he came to establish the kingdom of heaven as well, where literally Christ himself will rule and reign on the throne of David. And there'll be a physical kingdom, and because he, Jesus, is there, the spiritual kingdom will be united with the physical and we will see the kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven together. We recognize it as the millennial reign of Christ. In Revelation 1.6, the Bible says, And hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We're kings and priests unto God. I don't know about you, but I don't, I'm not much of a king today. Now, we are priests today, aren't we? The Bible calls us that. But kings? Well, I'll tell you what. Live your life today the way God intends you to. You'll be amazed at the responsibility you'll have one day in, 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 in eternity. We see here again the, the things that lie within the scope of human knowledge, the character of God, the divinity of Christ, the work of the Savior, The fruit of the Spirit, really. Again, I know it's difficult at times. We can't always judge whether the Spirit of God is in another person's heart. We, don't, we can't judge that sometimes. But, but we can judge whether or not that person is demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit. 
You can look at your own life and know whether or not the fruit of the Spirit is evident in your life. That's something you can know. I can't, I can't come to you and I can't say emphatically 100% that you're saved and on your way to heaven. But let's just be honest. If I spend enough time with you, you spend enough time with me, we'll come to a conclusion real quick probably whether or not the fruit of the Spirit is evident in my life. That's something that lies within the scope of human knowledge. Don't judge me. Judgment begins at the house of God. I'm not saying that you, and we talked about it already, we're not going to go into it again, but you know, we've got to get the beams out of our eye before we try to pull the moat out of another. I'm not talking about that. I'm just saying, you know, it is what it is. I mean, if I'm walking with a limp, you're going to say, hey, preacher, why are you limping? Don't judge me. You don't know that there's anything wrong with me. How dare you imply that? But you're limping. Don't judge me. Not only do we know some of these things here with the character of God, the divinity of Christ, the work of the Savior, the fruit of the Spirit. Let's think about just real quickly as we close the goals of the future for your life, my life. There's some things we can know. Now, listen, let's be honest. None of us possess the ability to see our earthly future. None of us. And you know what? I've come to the conclusion that that's probably for the best. You know, I used to think, I wish I knew when I was going to die. I used to think stuff like that. I, but, but that's assuming I'm going to die way out there. If I'd have found out I was going to die real early, then that would have been a bummer. I'd have been like, I wish I didn't know. You, you know what I mean? There's a part of it that we're very fortunate that we don't know what tomorrow holds. It would probably scare the life out of us. But we do know this. There are only two destinations which you and I are moving toward. That we know. See, there are some things that we do understand. There are some things that we do have knowledge of. And scripturally, the Bible really defines and clarifies that there's either a heaven or a hell in your future. And that's something that you control. That's something that I control in a sense. I can't control it in and of myself, but I can control it because of what he's already done on my behalf. And that's been clearly revealed. Clearly revealed. And this is the record that God has given to us eternal life. This life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that ye may know that ye have eternal life. That ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. See, there are some things that lie beyond the scope of human knowledge. And there are some things that are within the grasp and scope of human knowledge. I like how Solomon kind of comes to the end here. And he basically says, For who knoweth what is good for man in this life? All the days his vain life which he spendeth as a shadow? 
For who can tell a man what shall be after him under the sun? Well, there's a lot of questions that we have about our lives. And there's a lot of things we could question even about Scripture. Not that the Scriptures are to be questioned. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But there are some things that are beyond our scope of knowledge. But thank God there are some things we can know. And boy, those things that we can know, we need to hold on to with our whole being. We need to thank God always for what He has revealed to us in Scripture. And for the things that we're still not 100% understanding, we know that one day, perfect knowledge will be ours, in a sense. Someone has asked me before, people have said, will we know everything when we get to heaven? I don't believe we will. Because if we did, we would be equal with God. I believe there will always be things that we don't fully grasp or comprehend. I don't believe that we'll ever be equal with God. So I think there's always going to be something he knows that I don't. And you know what? I'm okay with that. And you know what I've chosen to be? Okay with that now, too. And so by faith, not by sight, we go forward. Pleasing and serving the Master. May God help us as believers. To do what we know to do. Not to focus on what we struggle with. Although you ought to be searching for answers always in your Bible. But what God reveals, let's apply. And let's truly allow Him to have preeminence in our lives. Father, we come to you. We thank you so much, Father, for just the simplicity.